Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy, and thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. People of color are especially prone to the stigmas associated with seeking mental health care. Mental health advocate Akia Red is... <clears throat> is here to create safe spaces for women and girls of color and to ask for and receive the help they need in their best lives, the help she wished she had when she was struggling. In her third book, The Precipice of Mental Health, Becoming Your Own Safe Space, wife of NBA icon Michael Redd shares her personal battle with depression, generalized anxiety disorder, atypical anorexia, and her estranged relationships with her father. Akia's honesty is key to helping readers understand that there is a path to healing for those who are struggling. It's also an eye-opening look at how spouses and family members can help someone during a mental health crisis. Akia Red, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lori, for having me. So you wrote a book, The Precipice of Mental Health, Becoming Your Own Safe Space. I love that so much. It, it's very inviting. <laughs> it kind of takes that whole stigma of mental health, of feeling helpless, into a place of becoming your own safe place, being able to find a way to cope. Let's just start with what brought you to write this book. Since 2016, for me, the mental health journey has been a very personal one. I think I've had issues way before then, like many of us do before we actually are diagnosed. But in 2016, it became really evident that I needed to seek counseling and also some medication. I've written two other books. And as we started going into COVID and the world shut down, I was on this trajectory off of the first book, like I was still being invited to come speak and tell my story. And then all of a sudden everything was canceled. For me, that being invited and wanted was so opposite of the rejection that I had faced in my life. So of course it was like a drug for me. And it was what I used to affirm myself, to validate who I was and my worth as a woman, as a person. I didn't have that anymore. And all I had was me, myself, and I looking at me, myself, and I in the mirror. And I'm like, ooh, I don't necessarily like what I see. I mean, I know I've written two books, but yeah, I'm not sure I like what I see right now. It led me into this depression, just detrimental. Honestly, I have never been that close to thinking about suicidal ideation, things like that. And so for me, I just decided to, when I started coming to, to just start writing down my feelings and my thoughts and my emotions, because I know that with depression, when you come out of it, sometimes it's very hard to kind of put yourself back there. So I knew that it was important before I got completely away from it for me to just capture those thoughts. And the thought of, like you say, you're up and coming, you're getting invited out there. You've taken these big steps and then the carpet's pulled out from under you and you're stuck home. Yeah. Looking at yourself in the mirror, like, do I really like what I see? And do I really believe what other people say about me? Or do I just like really need them to continue to like build me up and pump me up? And for me, the latter was true. I, I needed that from other people instead of having that internal value within myself. So let's talk about that. 
How did that, how did you turn that around? It was a process for me. I have the resources, right? And I think that in mental health care in general, I think that that's one of the hardest hurdles that we have to overcome is resources for everyone. Everyone deserves to live a healthy, happy life and be mentally well. For so many, that's just not the case because they don't have access to resources of the best therapists and such. But fortunately for me, I had a great team of professionals. And this particular professional started seeing me for cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. I just remember in several of those sessions, figuring out this list of like my 10 greatest hits and the 10 greatest hits were a list of the worst things I think about myself. Then our job in cognitive therapy was to dismantle and disprove every single one of those 10 greatest hits. That was the process. And then I think actually walking it out, (laughs) outside of the office, right off of the telehealth um, phone call. And so when those situations that would trigger would come up still, it was my responsibility to go and grab a worksheet and work through the worksheet and to actually do the work that me and my therapist had done together. It's little steps every day, not one huge giant step. It's such hard work, mental health, because spiraling and going negative is easy and doing the hard work is hard. And I have often said, I think emotional work is way more exhausting than physical work. Yeah, there's so much that goes into it. I just remember times where I would be so physically like exhausted from the emotional energy that I was exerting in doing the worksheets and actually talking through it. Cognitive therapy, was a game changer for me. But the way that I always preface this when I talk about that particular type of thing that I decided to do, it for me was a game changer, but it was really hard because you're not able to just go in there and sit and talk to your therapist like talk therapy. You do talk. It's more of a solution-based kind of thing. You can't ever go back and fix the trauma or unsee what you've seen or unhear what you've heard. But what you can do is the work in therapy to kind of dismantle those things. For me, we had to actually go through each and every one of them and identify the the cause and the root and its effect on me. And then how I was going to, in the future, counteract it as a trigger. So there's a lot of moving pieces to that type of work. It's a game changer if you commit to it, but you have to be ready for it. Being ready for it. We've gone through these two years, professionals call it languishing, where everything we hoped for got pulled away from us. And then we started to hope again and it got pulled away and it, and it kept happening. And so they call it languishing. I'm really curious about how are we ready for it? Because I do know a lot of people, they just want to put on blinders and they, they don't want to. And I, I can put myself in that category. I struggle with, with some mental health issues. And when sometimes I know if I get up and move or if I don't eat sugar, <laughs> I will feel better. But sometimes it's really hard to want to do the thing that's the best for me. 
Like I mm-hmm. will almost want to be destructive. Can you talk about that? So what I'll do is I'll, I'll kind of speak to what you just said, and then I'll kind of circle back to the original question about being ready. Full moment of transparency here. A lot of people, when they they see me on social media, or they, they hear me speak about my story. Sometimes there's an assumption that this was the past and I'm like no longer dealing with these, these issues. That could not be further from the truth because Full disclosure, just a few days ago, I had a mild depressive episode that lasted two days. I was able to walk myself through it by, yes, using the tools, but you are exactly right. We do want to do the things sometimes that are not the best things to do. So there was a day, one whole day that I laid in the bed with the shades down and didn't shower was forcing myself to drink and eat. I went to my toolbox of things that I had because I knew like, okay, I can either wait to come out of this or I can like work my way through it. I'm like, I got to work my way through it. I mean, have you looked at my calendar? Like I don't have, I cannot not work my way through it. I started working down the list of to do's. A lot of those things weren't working this time. And I was like, oh shoot, what am I going to do? So I literally... I drove to pick up my groceries, which was a win for me, by the way. And as I'm coming back home, I stopped over at McDonald's to get a Coke because I love McDonald's Coke. Anybody who knows me knows that there's something special about their Coke. I see this family over here on the corner and they have all these signs up. And I don't know what's true. I don't know if they are sincere, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to buy them a bunch of food and some bottled water. I made up in my mind, I'm going to do it. I drove by, I stopped at the corner. I gave them the food and the water and I drove off and I instantly, there is this endorphin rush, this dopamine that kicks in when you do the gratitude journal or you do something really nice for someone else when you're in that mode, because you're not focused on your current state of mind. And I will honestly tell you that that was the first time that I had ever done that particular thing in a depressive episode. It wasn't like magic, but I tell you over a period of a few hours, I started to get better. While we have to be careful to lean into our feelings, it can't be either or. It has to be a yes and. So yes, I need to lean into my feelings and I also need to be aware that sometimes I'm going to have to force my little self to get up out of bed, even when I don't want to. It's just that balance of just being in tune and being on target with yourself. That only comes through self-discovery and walking that path. When you say being ready, it's almost like you know that if you don't do something, it's going to be worse than if you do something you don't want to do? Yeah, I mean, I would say in terms of being ready for for the work that goes into therapy, because there have been a lot of people that I've talked to about this topic and it's just like, it's so exhausting. (laughs) I don't feel like doing this. And, you know, I don't want to work through the past and you have to not have that mindset. You have to say, I am so sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm so tired of, I'm tired of being depressed. I'm tired of being an anxious ball of nerves. I know that like my brain is wired a certain way and there's only so much that I can do, but that's so much that I can do. I want to be able to do everything I can. 
And so that's what I mean when I say ready. You've got to be at the point where you're like tired of it. You're just, I, and that's where I was. I was like, I can't live like this. If I'm going to live like this, then this, no, thank you. That's what propelled me into getting the help that was necessary. And you talk about stigmas and you said, especially people of color are prone to stigmas associated with seeking mental help. As a race of people, a community of people, we're 20% less likely to actually seek out help. It's a complicated matter. It really is. And I hate to use that phrase, but like, it is very complicated because not only do we not have the education and awareness, um, we don't have the resources, but also in society with the racial tension, with the social injustice that we've seen year after year for decades and centuries even. The problem is, is that we as Black Americans know that we have to work a little harder, move a little faster, do a little bit more to get ahead in society, to even have a fair shot. Mental health, because it is in general stigmatized, no matter what community, the last thing a Black American wants to do is to display any level of vulnerability that would disqualify them from being considered the head of their class or the head of their company or this or that, but because we have to work so hard to get to those places. So that's why we kind of keep it tight and hold it close to the vest, if you will. It's unfortunate, but I do think that times are changing. I think that we're going to see a turn of the tide. It's becoming more talked about. I was really intrigued by your subtitle, Becoming Your Own Safe Place. How did you come up with that? In one of my therapy sessions, I was doing this therapy. It's called EMDR, and it is a therapy technique that is used for PTSD, anxiety, in particular for veterans. That's what it was approved for first. I was getting that technique done. And one of the things that the therapist at the time said to me was, who are your safe people? Identify them in your mind. And I sat there for so long trying to think of these people. And my therapist whispers, you know that you can be your own safe place too. I had to open my eyes and well, no, no, I didn't. And in fact, I'm not because inside of my body, inside of my brain right now, which is very traumatized from all of the junk that's happened to me in my life, I am not safe for myself. I beat myself up worse and more than anybody ever has. I mean, now nobody on the outside has to do it because I learned to do it myself. I learned from her that it was possible to be your own safe space. But then I also learned that I wasn't. So in the process of being on the floor, in the closet, crying my eyes out for six weeks straight, I learned to become my own safe space because it was just me, the carpet, my tears, my God. I had to, to learn. For people that haven't had mental health issues, they can't begin to comprehend. So often we hear people say things like, well, just think happy thoughts. One of the things that you address in your book is how to support family members and people when they're going through this. And I would love to hear some things that you have to say about that. Sometimes we just want to help so bad. We don't want to see our loved ones suffer. And so anything we can try to say or do. And the reality of it is 
all you can really do is just learn to be curious about what they're dealing with and learn or remember to practice asking just one more question. Let me just give an example of this. My daughter, she's 11. Let's say she gets in the car and she says, I don't feel like myself, mom. I haven't been feeling like myself, mom. Because most of the time, like kids, unless they're around adults, like my kids would know what to say. But a lot of kids don't know how to describe mental health stuff. So they're just going to say, I just really feel like bad or I don't feel like myself. So how you would be more curious as a parent or as a caretaker, you would say, well, tell me a little bit more about that. What do you mean when you say that? Then that's going to lead them to say, well, it's like, I don't know. I just feel so like empty or numb or sad or tired based off of their response to that question you asked, then that's what you base the next question off of. And you kind of just continue to just work your way through it until you, as the caretaker, have enough information to where you can decide, okay, this person or my child, my loved one needs to see somebody. We need to call the primary care, get a referral, whatever that is. Curiosity is the first thing. Also educating yourself as a loved one, whether you're a spouse, a parent, a partner, whatever. Once your loved one gets a diagnosis or thinks that they may have anxiety, depression, bipolar, any of those things, you researching it and you getting all the education that you can so that you understand exactly as much as you can about what they're experiencing, that is going to be helpful. There are tons of books and even support groups for people who are supporting loved ones through mental health challenges on a regular basis. So that's worth looking into. And then I would think the third thing that I would say to any caretaker or loved one that is supporting someone is always allow the curiosity not only to reach outward, but also reach inward. So like if you allow the curiosity to manifest within yourself as far as like my daughter, my son, my, my loved one, my partner is feeling like this. Is there anything in, in me? Now, have I put on to that at all? I've really talked to parents about this and thought through this with parents because sometimes when we're parenting our kids, we parent out of how we were parented and it's not even on purpose. It's not bad. It's not intentional but it just may not be what that child that you have needs. And so we hurt and instead of help. And though unintentional, it doesn't erase what the child is experiencing. If we can work through our own stuff and work through our issues, then I think that we will also be a lot better for our loved ones. That's really beautiful. And when you're talking about stigma, so your child, you say, okay, I realize something's going on. They're going to need help. Now you're a parent and you've got to face that, help your child not fix them and then get help for yourself too. Because if it's a parent type situation, where do we all go? We go to blame, blame ourselves. Oh yeah. Yeah. Maybe we have some part in it. I love how you said that. Be curious and then look at ourselves and what can we do different? Maybe we're a family of people that yell. You know, I know yeah. there's families of people that yell and it's the way they do it. You might not be a yeller. So you're in their home and you're like, oh, but that family, it works for them. But then there might be that one kid in that family that it doesn't work for. That's your, that is spot on. There's always going to be differences in how you can relay a message to your child. And 
understanding that it's not bad as a parent to have to go back and apologize either to your kid. That's the other thing, man, an apology goes a long way. There have been times, my daughter, she struggles a little bit with anxiety, just like me. One time she was really in a panicked place And because I was so frustrated, because I didn't know what to do. And I know, look, I'm the mental health advocate and activist, right? And I'm, I have panic attacks too. So of all people, but I got so frustrated because it was my daughter and I wanted to help her. And I just wanted her to be calm and I wanted her to be okay. And she wasn't, and there was nothing I could do. And I lost it. And I had to go back and say, I am so sorry for losing my temper. I am so sorry for making things worse than making them better. And I went on to just explain in vulnerability to her that as a mom, as a parent, when you see your child not doing well, when you see your child being down on themselves, as a parent, you look at them and you're like, but you're amazingly beautiful in every way. And you just wanna help your kid. I said, that's what it was. I said, but it came out wrong and I didn't show up for you like I should have. And so I'm sorry. It goes a long way. I feel like we just need silence for a minute because that's so powerful. And it's not necessarily our first inclination. And like you said, we just want it to be okay. We don't want them to hurt. So it comes across they don't right. Yeah, they just hear our words. (laughs) Right. Yeah, right. so powerful. You had talked about in your book about having anorexia, that people of color struggle with that. I think in, again, Black American culture, eating disorders and body image issues, they're undiagnosed, first of all. Furthermore, it shows up very differently. There are a lot of cases of body dysmorphia in Black America with body modification of waist trainers and trying to get ribs removed and just all different sorts of things that we're seeing a lot of our icons do. If you are a person of color that lives in a community where this is definitely not talked about or ever addressed, but you think that you might be struggling with something like this and not completely accepting your body and you're always wanting to do this diet or drink this tea or go get this surgery, I would simply say, just do a quick Google search on body image disorders and eating disorders. And I would just read a whole host of things. And if any of them apply to you, if you have one is too many, But if you have three to five on on the list, I would say it's time to seek help, to go and, and speak to a primary care physician to get a referral to talk to someone who specializes in those types of things. We are talking with Akia Red, and her book is The Precipice of Mental Health, Becoming Your Own Safe Space. And where can we get this book? Everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) everywhere books are sold Uh, do you have a web page oh um if you want to go to akiared.com you can click any of the links right on that landing page there anywhere you want to get the book you'll be able to click and get the book i am a little i guess partial because i wrote it but i will say that it is probably one of my most prized accomplishments because I know what I put in there and the heart behind it. You can feel it when you're reading it. 
you definitely can feel the heart behind it. You're so brave to speak out and talk about this because it is hard. It is really hard. When you first came on the Zoom, I saw your picture with your hat on and I look at you and I look at how you talk and how you talk about your kids. And I can't help but feel like you have found a way to fall in love with you. Yes, I have. And the real me. Not the me that I'm supposed to be. Yeah. So it's the you that you've discovered by doing this work. 100%. I'm just a completely different person even than I was in 2016 and the evolution between then and even now. And you can tell between book one and book three, the growth journey is so evident. It hasn't always been fun, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. I have a friend who struggles with depression and she has often said, I think the key is embracing the depression. That doesn't mean that we don't do the work. It's a part of me. Yeah. I think of so many women who they don't love themselves. And like you said, the real me, they try to love the person that they think they're supposed to be. So how how do we get to that place? Number one, finding out who we really are. And then number two, falling in love with that person. You have to commit yourself to to doing the work, to discovering. I make people laugh all the time when I talk about this, but like when you think about the word data, right? Collecting data, it kind of comes out of like dating, right? When you're dating, you are collecting data on that person to see if they are a match. Well, we need to collect data and date ourselves. Figure out is who I thought I was and what everybody else put upon me, does that match who I really am. Again, buzzword, but be curious with yourself. Try a bunch of different things. It's going to be super awkward. It's going to be super uncomfortable at times, but that's part of it. That's the part of the journey that must happen in order for you to find out who you are because you first have to find out who you are not and what doesn't fit. Because a lot of times finding out who you aren't is a lot easier. So beautiful because this is a hard space to be in. People hearing your story, reading your book, they're going to be able to find some peace. It's about time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It is. One thing I will say about, you know, becoming your own safe place and actually falling in love with who you really are and the person that you were always meant to be is once you do it, there is a feeling of liberation and freedom. It's almost like before I was on the inside of the house looking at all the kids playing on all the playground equipment. But now I'm actually one of those kids playing on the playground. I like to talk sometimes in pictures because that's how I see things. I just remember like before I got the help, felt very much like I was enclosed, encased by screen, glass, separated from this life that I was, the facade, the facade that I write about in the book, the well-kept facade. That was me on the inside of the house and who I am now and who I was always meant to be is me on the outside of the house and I'm playing and I'm having the time of my life. It's not about being reckless and I don't give a care with anybody. No, 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 no. You've missed the point. If that's what you think it's about. 
it's more so just about if you do not have a healthy and loving relationship with yourself, it will craft every other relationship in your life. So the relationship that you have with yourself is so important and it takes work to develop that so that you can have fulfilling relationships with other people. That's a great place to end since we're out of time. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I look forward to just seeing and hearing the stories about how many people have read the book and mm-hmm. have been touched by it. Well, thank you for having me and I look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you so much. Have a great day. I'm Lori Hardy and thanks for listening in today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference. Oh,